Hi, this is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief of HousingWire. I'm the host of Housing News, and today we're interviewing Danielle Samelin. She's the CEO of Framework Homeownership, and we're going to talk about housing policy under the new Biden administration, and especially how it affects communities of color. We appreciate you tuning in. Hi, Housing News listeners. Welcome back. This is Elsina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard from our host, Sarah Wheeler, but before we dive into the episode, there's a quick word from our sponsor. For over 60 years, the private mortgage insurance industry has helped more than 33 million low to moderate income borrowers access affordable, low down payment home financing. This year, the private MI industry will continue to bridge the down payment gap for millions of more Americans and serve as the best option for low down payment borrowers. Learn more at www.usmi.org. Thank you for listening, and here's episode seven of season five of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Danielle Samelin, who is the CEO of Framework Homeownership. Danielle is an expert on housing policies and their effects on communities of color. As an organization targeting first-time and first-generation homeowners, Framework has provided homebuyer education, resources, and tools to over 1 million homeowners across the country. So, Danielle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be here. Uh, we're, we're so excited you're here. You know, the first question we always ask on Housing News is, how did you get into this industry? It's not something that is the same for everyone, and we always love to hear everyone's story on that. Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about that. You know, for me, I think it does go back um, sort of to my personal history. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I am a fourth generation New Yorker. So that means my great grandparents came through Eastern Europe to Ellis Island in the early 1900s, sort of the the immigrant story that so many New Yorkers um, in particular share. And both sides of my family were working class New Yorkers. My dad grew up in a housing project in the Bronx and my mom grew up in a tiny rental apartment above a storefront that was deep in the heart of Brooklyn on a major thoroughfare. And um, so both of my parents, my mother and my father are artists. And in the 1970s, when my mother was pregnant with me, and uh, New York City was basically just emerging from bankruptcy. They had an opportunity to buy a house, but they didn't. <laughs> they did not buy. At the time in the 70s, rent was cheap and they didn't have any money. They didn't have any financial support from their parents. And so really, uh, why in the world would they buy? And why in the world would someone buy a home in Brooklyn, <laughs> to be specific? And so <laughs> you can't not laugh to hear my sad personal story. Um, fast forward to today, and you know it's obvious that this was not the best financial decision. Um, ultimately, my parents rented in Brooklyn for 30 years, and then uh, they were displaced. They were displaced by gentrification, like so many artists are. And so for me, I've always been this kind of um, strange social scientist in, in a family of artists and creative types. I studied economics in school. I went to graduate school for urban planning. And 
that was at NYU in New York City. So I had this opportunity to be in grad school in my hometown in the early 2000s that was going through so much change and transition. And it was really quite fascinating. And again, the personal and the professional intersected for me. I, I felt the change in New York personally because it was during that time that my parents were displaced. And I found myself sitting in, in urban design classes in grad school and saying to myself, what is a city without the diversity of its people, the economic diversity, the racial diversity of its people? And so that got me in my master's program to study on uh, community development and, and to learn about the human beings that live in the buildings we were discussing in the urban design classes, the, the humans that use the transportation, et cetera. And so, it was also around that time that I was connected to a credit union in, in Bushwick in Brooklyn. This was a predominantly immigrant neighborhood and the credit union wanted to create a mortgage program for this largely unbanked community. Um, you know, there, were, there was one bank in the, in the neighborhood, but, but it was new, it was a new bank branch. And um, at the time there was a mortgage broker and he would set up a folding table. This is very real. <laughs> he would set up a folding table in the local laundromat on Myrtle Avenue. And he would say, get a mortgage while you fold your clothes, no docs required. And, <laughs> and you fast forward, of course, to 2008. And we saw the impact of such predatory practices when taken to scale, um, this wild west of mortgages. And, and for me, what tied my parents' story to that story was the connection to information. It was about information and who has access to that information, the information that can help you decide whether to buy a home or not to buy a home. And you know, when you see that the primary way for lower income families to build wealth is ripe with real information asymmetry, to me, this was a story about social justice and really the need for deep systems change about wealth building and also housing stability and affordability. Who gets to stay when cities change? Who's forced to leave and who can afford it? So that's how I found myself in this space. I think the housing affordability challenge is a supply issue. Of course, we need more affordable homes. But for me, I saw increasing access on the demand side, also as critical, you know, what can we do to ensure that first time and really especially first generation homebuyers gain access to information about the primary way they can build wealth so they can make their decisions with confidence. And, and so here I am, <laughs> that's, that's how I think, you know, I think in, in many ways I'm here, not because at age 10, I said I wanted to be the CEO of a social enterprise, called framework that provides education and tools for home buyers and homeowners but because of my personal history i did find myself in this in this role in this industry that's a really fascinating intersection of the personal and 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 now your professional life right i think that's really interesting and and funny for me because i have two kids who are artists living in bushwick right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
It's just crazy. And I agree with you. Um, I, I like the fact that, um, you know, your work is really looking at why or, or the, you know, the quality behind that. So not just building buildings, but who are the people occupying those? And what does that lend to the character of the city? It's so fascinating to me. That's right. So we, you know, with, with the new Biden administration, we've definitely seen a real focus on um, affordable housing in a way that we haven't in a while. And, and he's taken quick action. So, you know, he, he's clearly made addressing housing discrimination and fair housing a priority. In light of his recent executive order, what are some changes you expect to see? Yeah, so I, I was certainly among those who celebrated the significance of President Biden's executive order. Um, you know, this was the first time the federal government formally acknowledged the role it played in the history of housing discrimination in, in this country. And truly, the federal government did design and implement a racial segregation program under the New Deal. And, and, and it has had lasting impact, you know, from the 1930s through the 1960s. 98% of federal housing administration, so FHA loans, went to white families, and that provided a critical wealth building foundation for future generations that non-white families simply did not have. So this is historical fact, and yet so few people know about this um, at this critical moment in American history that changed so many people's trajectories. And I think that by articulating this so clearly in that executive order without defensiveness, it really does signal an openness to policy shift and to new approaches that promote equitable wealth building through home ownership. Well, you know, um, I, should, I should probably preface it. I mean, why don't you tell us, you know, a little bit about the executive order, just a, a brief summary, because people may not be aware of it. There's, there's been a lot going on. <laughs> people are really busy and, and uh, it's definitely something we've covered, but I, I would just love for you to just briefly say, what was the executive order? Um, so I think that people should read it. It's very short. Um, and, you know, and in it, the administration essentially acknowledges the, the systemic racism, first of all, acknowledges systemic racism is inherent in the housing market and also acknowledges the, the, its deep roots in federal policy. The New Deal was a response to the Great Depression um, and in, in so many ways um, really brought the country out and we think of it as, as very positive. But what I've learned in my um, education and my work you know, there are unintended consequences of almost all policies um, and intent and impact are two different things. Um, I think that what, what is really important for, for people to know is that when the New Deal essentially commodified the mortgage, so I talk about it, you know, before that there certainly were mortgages before the Great Depression, but really at that moment in time at 1934, that was when the, the idea of a middle-class homeowner really came to be. And when the idea of using a mortgage to buy a house um, became more, more standard practice. And unfortunately, um, what went into uh, the decisions around who had access to those mortgages was ripe with racism because the, the, lending decisions were based on these maps that um, were developed by the Homeowners Loan Corporation that um, 
designated certain neighborhoods as undesirable. And so the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, used those maps to determine who would get a federally insured mortgage. And what the Biden administration did was it acknowledged that history in the executive order and committed itself to working towards dismantling that systemic racism that is inherent in the, in the mortgage industry that, and that the federal government was not an innocent bystander at all. And in fact, an active participant in um, creating white homeownership. Um, so I think that it is really worth a read. And I think that the devil will be, you know, in the details of how policy and practice response to the executive order. Um, you know, I think that the, the fact is the racial wealth gap, which is driven by this homeownership gap is at its widest since the 1960s. So more than 50 years after the Fair Housing Act, housing discrimination is disturbingly common. So with the executive order, I think that there is no doubt that the administration has certainly signaled a commitment to the better enforcement of, of fair housing and fair lending laws that are already on the books. Um, you know, really making sure that those laws are enforced. But also I think we, we need, and I hope to see policy interventions that really promote sustainability through times of crisis, for example, like the one we're in right now with the global pandemic um, and its economic impact. And then, you know, policies and, and, and interventions that focus on closing the racial homeownership and wealth gap so that we can actually see um, an impactful difference. This is truly um, a holistic approach that's needed, not just to enforce policies and laws that are already on the books around fair housing, but also really looking at the entire ecosystem and how we all play a role and perhaps can all work together, I hope, to come up with creative solutions to make, to make change that is impactful and closes that gap. Yeah, and I mean, as you said, it was a really striking statement and um, hopeful for people who are looking at this at this problem. Um, uh, it's something that we've really uh, looked at as a coverage area and have, have committed ourselves to covering over the last year and, and going forward. Um, and Alsinev, who is our digital producer, who's on this, um, she's actually our, our media manager, who's on uh, helping us produce this podcast, just started a, a podcast called Honest Conversations to really talk about that gap in in uh, home ownership among black homeowners. So it, it's something that I think was really interesting that he came out with to your point. Now, what are the actions that are going to follow that is really gonna be the, the interesting thing to see. And kind of diving in a little bit, what, what is the role in your opinion of, of nonprofit, nonprofit housing counseling during a housing crisis? I mean, you talked about education as, as really key to, to seeing what that difference made in that community uh, of Bushwick and with your parents. So, so what do you think the role of that housing counseling is right now? Well, um, in, in the 2008 housing crisis, and I'll, I'll go back there because I think that was when we really saw how the nonprofit housing counseling industry was called to action like never before and um, how critical its role was and it can still be and should still be. So, you know, in 2008, servicers and mortgage investors you know, quickly saw that housing counselors were able to make contact with borrowers much more easily than they were. Um, and so 
outreach efforts where servicers would partner with housing counselors took off very quickly. Um, the role that housing counselors played as trusted advisors was really made impeccably clear during that crisis. And, and so between 2007 and 2012, my role uh, was to support a network of organizations that were responding directly to the crisis, which meant two homeowners who were either at risk of becoming delinquent or were already delinquent. They worked this network with hundreds of thousands of homeowners in crisis who were contacting them instead of contacting their servicer. These are community-based groups. These are were sometimes more regional focused groups, but with branches throughout different cities or counties. And it really was a tsunami of foreclosures. Uh, and the organizations that I supported had to ramp up very fast to provide services and to interface with the mortgage industry in new ways. And they also had to access funding sources to do this. And that was really my role. My role at that time was to support those organizations so they could access federal funds that were made available in response to the crisis. And, and it was really at that time, a uh, framework emerged out of, out of that crisis as a, as a way to reach consumers at scale, because we saw how critically important it was to have that trusted advisor. And, and actually research from the Urban Institute found that in that crisis, the borrowers who had counseling, housing counseling from a nonprofit counselor were 67% more likely to be current after nine months than homeowners who did not have housing counseling. There was some real value in this nonprofit counseling that was found through research that came out of the, the crisis. I guess one silver lining of having so many millions of people that were touched was that we were able to research it. We were able to demonstrate value at scale. And what we find now as um, you know, the pandemic, the, the COVID pandemic is very different type of crisis. And you know, the, the, the 2007, 2008 crisis was a direct result of those lending practices that I referred to earlier. While this is a public health crisis, a global health crisis, however, it has this economic impact. And what we don't want to see is somebody forced to decide between, you know, paying their mortgage or paying for food or paying for something else. And in any economic crisis of this scale and scope, we might see that. And, and what we're finding at Framework now is that we, we are connected to a partnership network of close to 200 nonprofit housing counseling providers. And what we know is that we have to leverage that partnership model in order to have the most effective impact in diverse markets uh, during this economic crisis. And, and that's because we're talking about outreach to the most vulnerable populations of homeowners. And so, you know, I have been really pleased with how quickly the mortgage finance industry has responded to the housing implications of, uh, of the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, making forbearance available. But of course, people don't know what they don't know. And as, as, as I mentioned in the beginning of, of this, conversation, Sarah, you know, this idea of information asymmetry, this idea of not even knowing that a forbearance program might be available to you, that is the first place where housing counselors can play a critical role in making sure that people who need it have access to that information. And they are a trusted, unbiased, third party, and 
we should certainly, I think, as an industry, the mortgage ecosystem should learn those lessons, not forget those lessons of the 2008 crisis. And really, I think, look to the nonprofit housing counseling space again to, um, to reach people and to make sure they know what, what options are available to them and how to ensure that people don't face foreclosure as a result, because they really don't have to. They really don't, they shouldn't have to. And so um, I, I, I really, I really, I hope that people remember um, the lessons from the last crisis. And I, I think it seems as though, it seems as though um, the mortgage industry does remember that, you know, not only is it critically important to be proactive about reaching homeowners early, but also that the nonprofit housing counseling industry is there to support that. I think especially um, when you think about outreach at this time when so many people have been displaced because of COVID, even if they own a home in one area, they may be in another area just because they had to leave or they might be, you know, uh, taking in parents from other places. Like it, it's a very strange time. And so I, I can especially imagine this differently than 2008, that outreach part and the people who know their communities are probably even, even more important now than they were then. That's right. That's right. You know, so, you know, you touched on this because it's like, it, it's not just getting people into houses. It's, it's that sustainable home ownership that we're really interested in, right? Like, okay. Like the guy setting up the card table. Yeah. He got a lot of people in the houses and then he got a lot of people foreclosed on. That's not the goal, you know? So, you know, when you look at it from your perspective of, of this expertise in this area, how can homeowners protect their biggest investment? That's right. This is a really important focus for framework as a social enterprise. I have been saying recently, you know, the American dream is not achieved when you sign a mortgage document at all. That's, that's, that's maybe the start, you know, that's, that's, that, that kicks off the dream, but you haven't achieved it just by signing the mortgage document or getting the keys to your house. It really is about living in that home. And especially if we're talking about intergenerational wealth, we are talking about sustainable homeownership over a very long term. And, um, and so I was, I was really struck, and I think this, this kind of set framework on the trajectory of really focusing on, on homeowners, not just home buyers. But in 2019, there was a bank rate survey that found that like a really whopping 63% of millennial homeowners express, express regret about their home purchase. I just thought that was a huge percentage, 63% expressed regret. And the reason they expressed regret was because they didn't know the true cost of homeownership. They said they didn't know specifically the true cost of maintaining and, and repairing things in their home. So they weren't prepared. Maybe they knew the cost of the mortgage, the, you know, and other costs that typically go into those calculators about how much house you can afford. But what they didn't feel prepared for was what it actually costs in that first year, that second year of homeownership. And so for me and for Framework Social Mission, this is absolutely critical. This is about long-term wealth building and protecting that big, big investment for many people, the biggest financial investment of their lives. And then if you take that a level down from that 63% of millennials across the board, but to some, some research from some academic research, um, Van Zant and Rowe shared in a housing policy debate article that in, in terms of lower income homeowners, 50% of first time 
lower income homeowners experience unexpected home repairs during those first two years of homeownership. And 33% couldn't afford to make the repair. So think about it. I mean, I think about it from the perspective of myself as a homeowner. I live in a house, it was built in 1799. I did that on purpose, that was my choice. Um, but, you know, things break all the time. It's almost guaranteed, even if you have a new home, there are going to be unexpected repairs. And in that research, 59% of those homeowners found that those maintenance and repair costs, they were more costly and required more effort than expected. So when we think about the most vulnerable homeowners, we want them to be in a position to address issues as they arise. They will arise but we want people to be able to plan for it. So this is, again, it's about having the information at the tools to plan, to be aware. So a $50 repair or a $100 repair doesn't become a $2,000 repair. And so from the framework perspective, we say, how might we support homeowners to effectively plan for their first few years of homeownership? And, and I really think it would be, great to see the rest of the home ownership industry really talking about access to capital, access to grants, access to sources of really, um, really good loans, for example, in those first few precarious years of home ownership. The, the Biden administration is talking about a home buyer credit again, which I think is a great thing. We know that down payment assistance is needed, um, especially for first generation homeowners. Um, not just first time homeowners. But, but I'd love to see a focus on the vulnerability that homeowners face after they get into that home. And especially in the first one or two years of homeownership where it really is precarious and costs are higher. Even if your mortgage payment itself might not be higher than your rent was, there are other unexpected costs that come up. And we don't wanna see people relying on credit cards with high interest or much worse scams or payday lending which really does still plague um, lower income communities and especially BIPOC communities um, and, and more vulnerable homeowners. So I think um, you know, as the pandemic, the COVID pandemic lingers and the economic impact grows and you know, we see people teetering on that vulnerable edge because what we have here is a, a, a shock, perhaps a payment shock if someone loses their job or has an unexpected medical expense, it's at scale. And we really wanna make sure that people can plan, you know, for those, for the maintenance and repairs, the standard stuff, as well as, you know, understand their, their options during the pandemic um, so that they don't have to decide between a mortgage payment and another critically important payment um, and, and lose that that investment that is so important. Well, I, I think about that, especially, you know, so I'm, I'm in Texas. And so, you know, two weeks ago, we had a really terrible, um, that storm. And you just think about all of the repairs that are going to be necessary for people's homes. So it's, it's a natural disaster on top of, on top of the um, shock of the, of COVID. And so you just do think like, okay, yeah, you've got insurance, but you have a deductible and um, that deductible can be really, uh, if you're, if you don't have a high income, it can it can be out of reach. So I, I think it's even, you know, if that didn't shine a even har harsher light on it, I don't know what would. That's right. That's right. And I think I think climate change, this sort of natural disasters that are occurring, it, they intersect so much with low 
income homeownership and where people live. You know, uh, when Hurricane Harvey hit, many of Frameworks customers are actually in Texas. And I, I remember, you know, we were sending out information to our homeowners in our um, in our on our platform because we wanted to make sure people understood what to do for insurance and you know understood how to contact their servicer if they had to if they had to um, and so it really is around you know that that intersection of especially as natural disasters might occur more frequently. Um, how, how we can be proactive and help people plan and make sure they know, even if it's a, a, a toolkit of how to talk to your service or what do you need before you call to destigmatize it, to make it less intimidating. Um, and also just to make sure people know that they're not alone and there is a trusted third party that is unbiased that's there to, to support them. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, we talked about the executive order. That's a top-down approach to this issue. But what are some of the strategies that have to be implemented as well from the ground up to really combat housing discrimination? Yeah, um, homebuyers, homeowners, and especially BIPOC homebuyers really do face these numerous barriers. And, and the way that I see it uh, is because the barriers are so many, we really need multiple strategies from players throughout the ecosystem to affect real change. And so this has to be holistic, not top down, certainly. And and it's not even bottom up. It's 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 action throughout, action throughout the ecosystem, from the federal government to mortgage lenders to realtors to community-based organizations community development, financial institutions, and of course, then to consumer protection groups or education providers. I think it is really critical that we work together to address housing discrimination and this homeownership wealth gap that is so significant in the country. An example of, um, of this sort of not top down or bottom up, but more holistic is, you know, as rapidly rising housing costs have made saving for a down payment, for example, and closing costs a big barrier to homeownership, I would love to see a bold commitment to providing down payment assistance, specifically, as I was saying, to first generation homebuyers. And the reason I focus on first generation is because this means if you're a first generation homeowner, your family hasn't benefited over time from the wealth accumulation from homeownership. And you likely won't have access to other sources of down payment support. So I really have found myself wondering what would a shift in focus from first time home buyers to first generation home buyers, uh, what would that do for the black white home ownership gap, for example? I'd really love to see academic research on the first generation home buyer demographic to understand it better. And I think that the Biden administration top down has, a has an ability to affect change with a home buyer tax credit or other credit, any kind of credit, but also so do other providers of down payment assistance. So that can be cities and counties, and that can also be employers, for example, who have a vested interest in ensuring their employees have housing stability associated with home ownership. So I think, um, I think that you know, realtors have a role to play and 
powerful role, frankly, to change the system for the better and ensure BIPOC homebuyers are given access to the same opportunities, homes, neighborhoods, as their white counterparts. And I also think it's important to examine bias that's inherent in things like appraisals and FICO scores. Um, and then of course, the community groups and the nonprofits that we already spoke of, right? The housing counseling providers, they have a role to play, which ranges from supporting consumers through education and helping them learn about the home buying process, but also fair housing education. Because I think that, um, some people don't even know that discrimination has occurred. You know, I, I actually do have an anecdote um, uh, from a framework customer. You know, sometimes people don't even know why things have happened to them. So we heard from a customer recently that told us that several mortgage lenders backed out on funding and it was without explanation. And they really didn't know, like, has, have I experienced discrimination or not? I just don't know why I didn't get this mortgage. I don't know why. And, and so I think that as a trusted third party at Framework and as housing counseling providers around the country hear those stories all the time. And I think there's a role to play in, in reporting and in educating, reporting fair housing violations and discrimination and also in educating people to know their rights. Great point on that. Um, I, I think that's so interesting. I'm always very surprised. Um, I didn't know anything really about housing discrimination until I, until I started working at Housing Wars, started looking at it. I just don't think it's it's something that your normal person out there, if they haven't been paying attention, they have they have no idea that that the reason that those are oh this neighborhood is you know which was maybe a, a neighborhood of color it 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 has those characteristics for a very it, it was it was planned that way. Um, you know, it might have freeways around it that make it inaccessible. It has food deserts. It's like none of that is is accidental. Um, but if you don't know that, you, you don't know that. You know, so I think that education piece, and and I think your point about um, first generation homeowners is really interesting. I mean, if you look at like the student loan industry, or, or maybe not student loans, but um, grants mm -hmm. for, for college education, if you are a first-generation person going to college, they, there are some specific programs for that because you recognize that, you know, the people, if they're the first generation, the generation before them probably doesn't have the resources to, um, to help them out the way that somebody who's, you know, parents, grandparents, whatever, have been going to college might have. So I think that's a really interesting uh, point of view that I haven't heard a lot about. Yeah, I think first time, first time home ownership is thing that people talk about, and that is important. And I do celebrate it. And we do at Framework uh, promote first time home ownership and work with, you know, hundreds of thousands of first time home buyers. I just think that as we're really taking a look as an industry, the entire ecosystem again, and as the Biden administration is is thinking about and acknowledging its um, the systemic racism, it is important to unpack that. Like what might be the impact of a first time home buyer credit versus a first generation home buyer credit? A first time home buyer credit might just, you know, perpetuate the white home ownership, black white home ownership gap that already exists. Um, so yeah, it is something that I'm thinking about. And I do think that there are certainly challenges, right? There's challenges to knowing for sure that someone is first generation. There's challenges to all of, of these solutions or potential solutions, but that doesn't mean that 
we shouldn't do them. Totally agree. Well, let's talk about some of those challenges from your perspective. What are some of the biggest ones when it comes to implementing fair housing? So I think, first of all, you know, there's the why. Homeownership plays a bigger role in creating wealth for Black families than it does for white families. And that is backed up by research. And we have seen that housing equity makes up nearly 60% of total net worth for Black homeowners compared with 43% of total net worth for white homeowners. So while homeownership shouldn't be the only focus of policy and wealth building for Black households, it is a critical foundation for building wealth. So that's, that's the why. That's why we're talking about this. And, and what I think is we need to take a hard look at whether policies and funding decisions at all levels of government are actually reducing those disparities between neighborhoods and breaking down barriers to inclusion. And, and, and I mentioned this a little before, this in intent versus impact, right? We have to be open to what we learn when we examine this, right? We have to be open to the fact that intent and impact of a policy are two different things. What unintentional consequences might our policies cause? And, and so what we know is that even after the Fair Housing Act was enacted in 1968, black households continue to face discrimination in the housing market. And they do today. And that was, you know, banks, the real estate industry continually undermined Black ownership. They resisted neighborhood integration in, in many ways. Um, what, I, what I think is really challenging is that laws and policies are created by humans. And then it's also up to humans, to those of us who are humans, to implement them. And what that means is human bias creeps into the system and it creeps in in so many ways micro, macro, all across the system. And so consumer protections are critical. Consumer education is critical. And, and people really need to know the full range of what constitutes discriminatory practice, who to turn to if they experience it. But really, we have to look at things like how to address those biases that are you know, a law, a law is only as good as who is actually upholding it. And I think it takes this comprehensive effort to, to make sure that, that we are as a, as a, as an ecosystem really working together to implement fair housing. Um, you know, I think to, to really reiterate it, you know, I think, I think that this, this idea of true progress in addressing the legacy of racist housing policy and practice and how it continues today, right, with fair housing violations. It really requires this broad and holistic focus on affirmatively furthering fair housing. So that really is critical that it comes from the top, from, from the Biden administration, leadership, leaders in our industry across the board, and then also from the private and nonprofit sectors, um, this real holistic approach. And, you know, and I think we can work together to not overwhelm ourselves as an industry, you know, take small steps, but work together to achieve these shared goals and, and really address the, the fair housing violations as well as the legacy of discrimination and the impact that has had on, on wealth in this country. 
Well, Danielle, I really appreciate the thoughtful discussion on this. And we'd love to have you on again as we get farther down the path on what some of those specific policies or strategies are going to be, because um, there's just so much here to unpack. There really is. It has been really great talking to you, Sarah. Well, we appreciate it. And thanks for being on uh, Housing News. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out Housing Wire's daily podcast, Housing Wire Daily, which is a wrap of Housing Wire's hottest stories and now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And we'll see you next week.